Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. I'm your host, Michael Miss Collins Rothman, and I'm here to tell you that my idea for that little trick you pulled today was three days suspension and refusal <laughs> of your prom tickets. I think that would get you where you live, wouldn't it? And let's just say you deserve it. I don't think any of you have any idea of just how nasty what you did really was. But the office has decided you're to have one week's detention instead. Still, there's one little catch. It's to be my detention. <laughs> and that's 90 minutes right here, right now, on the athletic field, where we'll be talking about Brian De Palma's 1976 <laughs> United Artists smash. Carrie, get the picture? Good. <laughs> Because this month, the Stephen King adaptation, the very first of its kind, mind you, turns 45, and we're going to be celebrating the occasion with a fast, a fiery, and a furious long watch episode that would make even Billy Nolan's car flip. <laughs> Joining me on the field today is a real ragtag team of troublemakers, the likes of which have been haunting the halls of Bates High all year long. The big bully at the top is on a Bowers tier himself. Uh, he's from <laughs> Chicago. Say hello and tell us the first time you saw Carrie. Hey, this is Rock and Randall Promburn, and I'm uh, <laughs> I've, I saw Carrie when I was in um, high school, but I didn't really absorb it. I think I was at a party or something. So this was actually a huge blind spot for me for for many years, in that I I knew the movie in sort of an ambient sense. Uh, you absorb, I think, certain scenes just through pop culture. Carrie, the whole prom scene's been parodied and and redone so many times that uh, it's you know it's kind of just something you know without even having seen. Um, I was a big fan of the book though I read that multiple times and the book that version that I had was the movie version so it had pictures of of everyone in it which was you know I was probably like 10 years old so I I've I've always even though I didn't know the movie as well I've always thought of like Tommy with beautiful blonde locks and everything because I saw William Cat. so um but yeah the first time I kind of saw it without with while actively paying attention was at a drive-in that I went to with you, Mike. That's true. Uh, yeah. yeah, we went to a drive-in and watched it a couple of years back, and uh, it was fucking that freezing was a, that night. And yeah, it was really cold, but I it had was to fun. Buy, I think we had to buy hoodies and beanies at like the the swag <laughs> <laughs> merch table. The guy was like really swindling us. Like well, it's cold. Um, um, <laughs> so yeah, that's my experience with Carrie. I I love this movie though. Like that's the thing is the more I watch it, the more I really love it. And so even just rewatching it earlier today was great. I'm, I've seen it um one other time after we saw it at the drive-in so this was my like third and a half time seeing it well that's good that's good because uh we got a, a hell of a test later on today <laughs> so let me keep this high school sh high school shtick going um always wanted to be a teacher but uh jen uh 
you're wearing a hat, uh, a red hat. Um, oh, yeah. It's and it my says, whole personality. And it says Nashville <laughs> right at the top of it. Tell us your, uh, tell us, uh, the, the, your ties to Carrie. Not Carrie um, White, but the movie, uh, 1976's Carrie. <laughs> Uh, well, this is Jen, the original Rage Adams. Oh, and, uh, <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, because my, my nickname is from the sequel, which is also mm-hmm. good, too. Um, but uh, yeah, I this was one of the first King adaptations I think I've ever seen. I don't exactly remember what the first one is, but I have this memory of watching this in fifth grade with my friend Naomi at her house. And I didn't know very much about it, but I knew it was Stephen King, so I knew it was going to be scary. And she had older brothers, and so she kind of got a lot of the cool stuff stuff and I would kind of like as the older child in my family I didn't have access to a lot of like the movies and stuff and so I remember we were watching this and at the end her brothers were hiding in the like behind us and so at that moment when the hand jumps up like they jumped out and scared us and we freaked the fuck out it was really fun um and and then you were like ran screaming from the room and it was it was really fun um and I don't remember the first time I read the book I think it was a little a little later on in my King years, I think because I was a little bit turned off by like the epistolary format at first. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, and so I read it and I just loved it. And I read it, I think in like a day or two, cause it just reads so fast. And since then it is one that I've gone back to a lot because I have the audiobook and Sissy Spacek reads the audiobook and it's really, really, really wow, good. That's yeah. cool. That's really it cool. Is. Yeah, it's one that I re-listen because I've I've said before before I discovered podcasts, I just listened to Stephen King audiobooks all the time, and this was one that I would listen to over and over again. So does she yeah. do like asides during the reading? Like, hey, this is a really <laughs> fun scene to uh, film uh, when Brian side. <laughs> no, like, all right, let's I get wish. back to the book. Uh, <laughs> right, oh, nice, <laughs> nice. Knock it uh, off, sissy. I love it. Yeah. Uh, I, I need, I'm still waiting for my um, Dale Midkiff read uh, Pet Cemetery audiobook. Oh. Um, <laughs> he just talks about Lewis the entire time. <laughs> Um, be great. How much it hurt when he smashed his face? His yeah, face. exactly. You know, it's like, well, Mary just had me do the take over and over again. But, um, <laughs> well, look, we're not alone here on this field. Last, but certainly not least, on my roster is a new transfer student from sunny Los Angeles, California, I believe. Please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Colleen. Colleen Green. Hello, hello. Thank you for uh, for joining us on the field. And also, look, let's just be real. Joining the Losers Club. This is awesome. This is uh, we're, we're uh, totally happy to have you here. Um, the pleasure when, is all mine. Well, when was the first time you saw Carrie? I don't remember. It was several years ago. Yeah. Um, but I definitely saw the movie before reading the book. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I like maybe watched it with my mom or something like years ago. Yeah, I feel like that. That's kind of how I felt. Like I had, I had seen it too. Was I, I? I. It was like it felt like an afternoon movie for a while, just because it. I feel like it was on TV a lot of times during the afternoon. I don't know. When but, what did you think about the book, Colleen? I also read that several years ago. I had kind of a um, Stephen King, not a phase because I'm still a big fan, but I had a period of time where I read a bunch of his books, like all in one year probably or over the, the span of like a couple of years oh wow um, it was probably in, like I want to say 2014 maybe or something and I was just like touring a lot and just always had a book with me and just I went through like Pet Cemetery, The Shining, Cujo, Carrie like started Dolores Claiborne didn't finish it um, <laughs> but uh yeah that's and, a taxing read no yeah. no worries there yeah yeah uh, 
What's your what's what's some of your favorite King books? Pet Cemetery is my favorite overall. Same. It's, it's mm. my favorite um, book and my favorite movie. Yeah, I, love the movie. I, yeah. On tour, and I read that for the first time, and um, it's like the only move, the only um, book that legitimately scared me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember I was reading it. We were in Denver, Colorado, and we ended up staying with somebody like in the suburbs of Denver, like out in the woods. And I was sleeping in a room by myself and it was like all dark and super quiet and like woods everywhere. And I had just finished Pet Cemetery, and I was actually very, very scared. Oh, wow. Yeah, we, we we feel like that's probably the scariest book to date, even mm. even now after all these years <laughs> later. I mean, it it's there's just something really chilling about it. I mean, the multitude of reasons, obviously. I mean, Jen, you've talked about like even just as a, becoming a parent, it was like a big, it definitely changed. It got scarier for you. But I yeah. I, I just think that even just the, because it is like a ghost story. It's a zombie story. <laughs> it's it's like everything all in one. It feels like almost like a greatest hits collection. But mm-hmm. um are you still uh, continuing your journey through King? Or are you kind of taking a break at this point? <laughs> I have taken a break. I, I've kind of taken a break from reading. Yeah. <laughs> I got some other stuff going on. So yeah. Yeah. Speaking of your other stuff, tell us about uh, your new album. Cool. I, yeah, I just had an album come out. It's called cool. It's, it's- very cool. Is there any songs about, about Stephen King? <laughs> yeah. <on it>? <laughs> <laughs> No, but fun fact, I do have an EP called Cujo and a song song called Cujo as well. That's on uh, said EP that came out in like 2012, I think. But uh, yeah, that's uh, it's not about the movie or the book at all, but um, (laughs) a repurposed title uh, as a way. Nice. Did you just like the name of the name Cujo? Yeah. Yeah. And I I love Cujo, too, actually. That was the first Stephen King movie that I saw. And I was pretty young. I think I watched it at a cousin's house because they had HBO or something. Yeah. And like, yeah, I remember being pretty terrified by that. That's a scar. That's a scarring one for kids, I feel. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) um, well, let's get, let's talk about Carrie a little bit, you know, because I I think what, you know, similarly to a lot of the books that you just mentioned, Colleen, I I feel like Carrie, what makes it so timeless is that, um, you know, like owning dogs and, and I guess like having your pets die in pet cemetery. Um, at some point in our lives, we go through high school, you know, we deal with bullies. Uh, we have to contend with the, the, the whole ceremony of high school. And, and I guess I, you know, since, you know, 45 years since it's released, this movie has taken on, you know, an iconic status with, you know, most, you know, most folks agreeing that this is one of the best high school movies um, ever made. And I kind of just wanted to throw it out there for the whole, you know, for the whole panel. Like, what do you feel Carrie gets right about high school? One of the things I love about the movie is that it feels like a high school movie in addition to a horror movie. Yep. I think a lot mm-hmm. of like horror movies, the horror takes precedent over like actually depicting high school as as it is to some degree. And um, and you know, I think there's a lot that's heightened about this um this movie in in many ways. But I think uh. I mean, obviously, but I think when it comes to the dynamics that are at play and how easy it is to get swept up in sort of uh, groups, like one of the things I've always loved is that Sue is one of the people who sort of initiates the tampon scene Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. when she ends up becoming sort of the, um, you know, the nice girl or whatever, like as it goes on. But how easy it is for even non-bully type people to kind of fall into that behavior and how easy it is to turn one person 
person into the outcast when the group all sort of aligns. And it doesn't mean that all these people are like evil bullies. It just means that that's there's a tribe mentality in high school oh, yeah. specifically that I think always forms. And um and that's something that really resonated with me because I I've been part of those bully groups and I've also been bullied by groups like that, where it's mm-hmm. like all these people who you're like, hey, I thought we were friends like they're part of that group, too. That sort of is is raining down upon you. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's one thing that just instantly came to mind. But how about you, Jen? Um, yeah, I think I do. uh think that is interesting. And I remember in my um, ed classes, we, they would talk about like specifically middle schoolers, but I imagine it still applies in high school, like the concept of the invisible other, meaning somebody is always watching you, even though nobody is, but you think somebody is mm-hmm. and somebody is judging you. And so like, it's like, if you are not the the focus of the, the scorn, then it's so relieving that you want to kind of jump in to somebody else's, you know, and that's how I feel like you get swept into things it's like well thank god it's not me right now and if I stick my neck out right now it might be me in a minute and I think the book really dives into a lot of those themes um the thing I think that is really interesting about this and we've just for another show I just watched the faculty so I've got high school movies on my brain (laughs) nice but I like how like cut and dry everything is and I like how kind of simplistic things are like this plan for Sue, this is a terrible plan for Sue. Like (laughs) the odds of something going wrong are extremely high, but like it's that kind of juvenile, like this will make it right kind of mentality that I think is really interesting. And Chris just like being so harsh and it's, it's just really all or nothing, which I think is kind of like a mindset that you have when you're that age, because as you get older, you start to kind of understand the nuances and the complexities of situations that are just hard to see when you're that age so that's something i think it gets really right oh 100 percent. yeah colleen what speaks to you about this movie about about being true to high school yeah i mean well first of all speaking of the faculty another piper laurie role oh that's true right. oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> or because i was like why do i know this lady like i was thinking she was in that really freaky alice in wonderland made for tv movie yeah oh. <laughs> um, uh-huh. still haven't confirmed that but um that <laughs> Dream a Little Dream is like where I know Piper Laurie from. Um, two other great, weird, kind of like culty high school movies, speaking of which. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I agree with what, what you guys all said. And I think that um, Carrie's, uh, I think her saving grace is her instincts. She has really good instincts and she's 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 got a pretty good sense of self and she's pretty true to herself, even like in the face of all this torment that she's put through um throughout the entire movie uh even like with her mom who's obviously like this crazy tour de force um she still manages to like keep her cool a lot of the time even Mm -hmm. you know notwithstanding what ultimately ends up happening but um (laughs) she's pretty rational like throughout and you know she knows that they're trying to trick her when she first gets asked to the prom and she doesn't want to go along with it and the fucking teacher kind of like convinces her to for some reason um mm-hmm. which is weird but uh yeah i think that <laughs> her, her strength for sure is her instincts yeah yeah i mean i, I feel like the 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 the, del- the delts in this feel real as well um because i one of the things that i just recall from being you know both as what randall was saying like on both sides of the spectrum here um you do get to see the sort of impatience of adults when you're in the front lines like that. And you realize early on, 
at that age, especially if you're being called the office, <laughs> that <laughs> the adults are uh, far from imperfect, um, are far from perfect. They are imperfect. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, they're really fucking fed up <laughs> with everything. And the thing I really liked about this, uh, about, you know, De Palma is that he he shows so much without telling, you know, and you can see it in the eyes of all the adults that, they're like, you know, the inevitability of, of some of this stuff. And then especially with Miss Collins, you know, there's that scene where her and Carrie are outside the high school. And I just keep thinking about that sequence where, you know, she's so happy that Tommy's going to take her to prom, but she also knows the dangers and the fragile, the fragility of this situation. And I just feel like in lesser hands, that scene could just so be like black and white where like the mm-hmm. teacher's like, oh, that's great, Carrie. Oh my God, that's wonderful. But like, there's a little nuance there if you're like focusing on and on her ba- body language and body language is so rampant in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that was so rampant in high school for me growing up is that, you know, people hide things, they contain things, teachers and students. And you really kind of have to read between the lines um, outside of the classwork uh, to really understand what the hell's going on in the hall sometimes. And mm-hmm. I think some of the biggest in hindsight some of the biggest ghosts and demons that I have are not recognizing those things until they were either too late or, you know, it's 20 years later and I'm waking up at three in the morning thinking about something that is just bothering me for some reason that I didn't think about at the time. Um, but I also get the vibe that perhaps this movie is, is slightly critical of how much what it's Miss Collins, the gym teacher mm-hmm. of how much she is, interfering in Mm -hmm. in Carrie's life and or getting involved in Carrie's life and those are and the punishment of I don't know like for me I feel like there's a reason De Palma kills her at the end Mm -hmm. and she doesn't die at the end of the like Carrie spares her in the book Mm -hmm. uh because King's such a moralist you know that the nice person gets to live Mm -hmm. um but in this movie she gets killed too and I think it's because she's complicit to a certain degree as well in perhaps getting too involved in the lives of these students. Yeah. That's my cynical side coming out, but it's something I picked up on, on this, on this, uh, watch of it. It's not wrong. Um, what memories come to all of us though, while watching, uh, Carrie and, you know, particularly as it like relates to bullying, um, and even prom. I mean, if we have any prom stories, what are you making me open up about my bullying? I am, I am waiting for you to just, just go be like, I'm so sorry. I, you know, I, I, I got pig's blood once and put it up on the, the, the river. Like, holy I've shit. I've done blood on a lot of kids. We don't need to get into it. <laughs> nice. Nice. Um, but do you feel like the, this, this film depicts bullying, uh, true to life or do you think it's a little too sensational? Oh, I think it's a, I think it's sensational a bit on purpose. The thing about bullies that was always weird with me was, was they would just be so shitty to you one day and then nice to you the next day for mm. random reasons. You know, it's like, there was no real consistency. I had one, I have one sort of bully, like my true nightmare bully was this kid named Justin Kilgore, who, uh, you just, you just beat the shit out of me all the time. But I love he, that you said his full name. So uh-huh. it's like, oh, yeah. hey, call, him out. <laughs> call him out, man. Uh, no, he was such a piece of shit. Um, but he used to like chase me on my bike and kick me over. He stole my candy on Halloween. Uh, he used to spit on my head on the bus. This kid was a genuine piece of shit. Uh, and I hated him. And so, but that's the thing was he was my only sort of consistent bully. There were other guys who made fun of me, but then the next day they'd be like, I don't know, just be like, Hey, what's up? You know? Cause I think it's just a matter of who you're around and what influences are there. Uh, I don't think most bullies are like just, you know, intent on beating up on the same person. It's kind of like whatever opportunity arises where they feel like they have power. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, well, it's such a doggy dog environment, right? <laughs> no, but I mean, honestly, like, I mean, I, I, I like what you were saying earlier about, you know, Amy Irving, um, uh, 
her uh, you know, Sue Schnell basically coming around and starting it as well because like yeah you know the reality is yeah sure there are some more outla- outlandish bullies in our in our high schools and our schools or wherever we are I mean I feel like they they kind of continue out their life but really there are degrees of of um vitriol that everyone has mm-hmm. inside them and i think what well, you're saying yeah. is like it is it is like a strange weather sort of situation every day we're like okay but well. this is something i've said about b- king bullies which to me are very specific archetypes which is mm-hmm. that they're they're much more like they're possessed of some kind of uh vengeful evil in them you know like henry bowers uh buddy repperton like chris hargison even in this they're they're driven to torment and punish single people to the point where it's almost as if they're possessed and in literally in uh mm-hmm. it they are possessed by some kind of grander evil in order to ruin this person like these bullies aren't just like they don't want to beat you up they want to kill you yeah. and mm-hmm. like that's how chris is like she wants to kill carrie yeah. like, when she's right. going down on her boyfriend she says i hate carrie White. i know like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it makes you wonder like what kind of kids stephen king went to school with like i have wondered that often when reading his stuff but I what I think is so interesting about this is that it is so much about like girls being bullied which is not a typical king bully like in the typical king bully is Billy Nolan you know but he is not like the primary uh, like antagonist here he just kind of goes along with it and I think it's really interesting and I have a lot of thoughts about like the opening scene and how girls are represented in this movie but I think it is really interesting to see the ways that girls are cruel to each other that in a different way than the, the way men are, are boys. I think it's a lot more about like humiliation than like physical harm, mm-hmm. you know, which is what we see in the beginning. And I mean, I, you know, that I've got a lot of thoughts about that and periods and just girls in general, but yeah, it's just, Me interesting. Too. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Uh, Colleen, did you have a lot of bullies uh, in high school growing up? Uh, I didn't mean to. uh, Oh, no, no. Go for it. Okay. It brings up memories for me because when I was in middle school, I think, I vividly remember um, the two, like, most popular girls in the school spread a rumor that this other unpopular girl had gotten her period and kind of just, like, got everybody to, like, laugh at her Mm -hmm. and make fun because of that mm-hmm. which really weird and yeah because like ostensibly they got that as well at some point mm-hmm. so thinking about it like there's a lot of like women being punished in Stephen King um stories like in Cujo the 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 wife is like being punished for for being a cheater and mm-hmm. in The Shining like the, the the wife is the the target of the murderous rampage and and Carrie, like it's a lot of a lot of times. Like, does Stephen King like hate women or what's going on? <laughs> well, Jen wants to write a book about this. So. I do. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think um, I, I do think that he has some women that he punishes. Um, I think. I don't know if I necessarily think that he doesn't like women because I think that there are a lot of female characters that I really connect with you know and I think that he does have Tabitha read his stuff and kind of enhance stuff like I'm really kind of impressed with the the different levels of female characters in this book because this is a book about women you know like the boys are kind of side characters and side pieces um but yeah there there is a lot of um 
like I'm trying to think of who the the good woman is in this like who is the hero of the story and I really want to root for Carrie and I love her in a lot of ways but I mean she is probably the most destructive woman in this and so it is interesting like I, I don't know what the virtuous woman character is here and I don't know if there is one you know yeah it, it's a very strange film in the sense of protagonist or antagonist right you know like mm -hmm. it's so mercurial like I, and, I, and i have some questions later on when we get to the heroes and villains about this um because i do think that there it, it is just a hodgepodge it's it's just a ball of chaos um when it comes to those those lines um before we head over to our next section though i did want to ask um you know this is about prom or not about prom but it takes place at a prom and I feel like that's usually a melting pot for chaotic stories. So I did want to just spend just a couple of minutes to see if anyone has any, you know, particular prom memories that they might want to revisit. I know Caffrey was the prom king, who are our fellow co-host. So, oh, wow. um, so that was, uh, I guess that was pretty cool for him. Didn't end this that like the the, the De Palma <laughs> movie. So fortunately for you know Caffrey, Caffrey won over the school in that respect. But um, does anyone else have any like fun prom? Because personally, I didn't go to prom. I went to go see X Two X Men United instead because I'm <laughs> I'm so I mean that cool. is the best X Men. Yeah, I'm yeah. so cool. Um, but uh, yeah, I just remember being like, oh shit, prom was tonight. And and it's like Wolverine is, you know, probably slicing up a BMW or some shit. But yeah, my prom was was anticlimactic. It was it was kind of sad in that way. I just yeah. went with a buddy of mine. We just we had fun. But, you know, just another night. It was like yeah. American Pie. You're like, it, it's like, this is the time of our lives. And it's like, you know, somewhere <laughs> in the background, like Simple Minds are playing or something. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, Colleen, what yeah. about you? Did you have, did you have a, 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 an awful prom night, a good prom night, no prom night? What was... Um, I went to my high school's prom. It was a junior prom. It was kind of like just expected that everybody would go because it was I, I come from a very, very small town in Massachusetts and uh, very, very traditional, um, extremely small high school graduating class of 130 kids. Oh, wow. um, so yeah, you kind of just like had to go to prom or else like the town would talk probably. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, I went to my prom. I brought, um, a handsome friend of mine from a different school. So I could be like, that's What's cool. up? Like, <laughs> mm. nice. um, it was fun. Um, I don't know. I think I was like a bit too self-conscious to really like enjoy myself. Uh, my date was really good because he didn't know anybody. So he was, he was just like wilding out and that was, mm. it was with him. Um, I also went to a neighboring town's prom when I was a senior in high school. And that was much funner because I, I didn't know anybody there and I could wild out. So I remember us just like playing tag <laughs> in the bedroom. Oh, um, that sounds like so much more fun than, than the regular prom activities. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I don't dance like in my life. So I don't think I really danced very much, like maybe a little bit to just be silly. But I remember like stealing another table's dessert tray. And <laughs> I feel like this is mine. Um, right. <laughs> love it. That was a long time ago, though. Long, long time ago. Uh, so. Love it. Uh, Jen, what about you? Um, yeah, I went to prom, my junior and senior prom with the same guy, and he, I like to say, managed to ruin both of them for me. Um, although it was, I mean, it was fine. But, like, so he, he was a year older than me, and he had me, he had told me that he was going to go as a stormtrooper. And that that was it's a costume of a prom, <laughs> yeah, was right? Like, yeah, he, but like it's nobody else. Was, 
<laughs> it, it, exactly. He was like, well, this is just what I want to wear for prom. And it's my senior prom. So whatever. And like silly little me was like, well, I can't break up with you because then I'll be a loser. Um, but anyway, so he had it did not go as a stormtrooper, but he had rented his tux from a costume shop and he was like a beanpole and they had given him the wrong size. So his pants like literally could not stay up. So he picked <laughs> oh me up God. super late and we had to go back to his house so his mom could like pin up these pants. And it took like an hour. So we missed most of the problem. We missed pictures. <laughs> And then senior year, he was my senior year. He was a freshman in college and he had gotten a role in the the play. And so I had to go in my prom dress and just sit in the audience. And then we went after the play was over and it was just real, real sad. Um, but I remember I asked him, I was like, can you ask the director if she'll move the play? Because it's prom. <laughs> and like now I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> play director is like. high school girl had asked me that. It's like, get out. Um. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, But I mean, it was fine. Like I survived. So, yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, well. <laughs> Well, look, it's uh, it's getting kind of fucking hot out here. So I'd say we move this detention to a little place that we like to call the Bates High Library. Hi, Carrie. Hi. Um, if you don't have a date for the prom next Friday, would you like to go with me to the prom next Friday? I know this is late notice, but uh, see, they stop, Carrie. Carrie, well, look, grab a chair, because in the library, we're going to discuss the background of the film, the production, the crew, the music, basically everyone who's not in the cast. But look, I'm going to give a real quick rundown just so we know where we're at. Uh, Carrie, the film we're talking about, uh, directed by... <laughs> place to begin that's a good place to begin i thought you know we could for all we know people could do the thing and like we're talking about singles a lot you're you know um <laughs> carry two there's a i think there's yeah. a prom in that but um no i think it's just a party no prom in carry two what's the deal um anyway directed by brian de palma screenplay by lawrence d cohen cinematography by mario tozzi music by pino Donaggio. release date november 3rd 1976 and if you do the math i swear that's 45 years ago so that's why we're talking about it um budget of 1.8 million gross 33.8 million it received two nominations at the 49th academy awards best actress for sissy spacek and best supporting actress for piper laurie both left empty-handed and you could blame one movie network the Patty mm. Chayefsky movie. Great movie, though. Pretty good movie. Great movie. It's a hard, This is a tough year, I will say. We'll get into that in just a little bit. But 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, so Brian De Palma in 1976 must have been like checking the Rotten Tomatoes score and just being like, oh, <laughs> fuck. Uh, we got 92. Um, and 85 on Metacritic. Since then, it's uh, ranked 86 on Empire's list of the 500 greatest movies of all time. Ranked 15 on Entertainment Weekly's list of the uh, the 50 best high school movies. So I wasn't lying before. Uh, notched at 46 on mm. AFI's 100 Years, 100 Thrills. I used to watch those lists all the time with my dad. Um, prom Scene, ranked eighth on Bravo's 2004 program. The 100 scariest mo- movie moments. So yeah, I guess. That. And then The Losers, Us. Uh, long ago when we used to be writers, we ranked this number five on uh, the list of King adaptations. Um, King loves this film in the dance macabre. Uh, he, he wrote a lengthy, uh, piece basically saying, you know, De Palma's approach to the material was lighter and more depth than my own. 
It was that high school is a place of almost bottomless conservatism and bigotry. Adolescents who attend are no more, no more allowed to rise above their station. But there's a little more subtext to the book than that, I think, at least. I hope so. If the Stepford Wives concerns itself with what men want from women, then Carrie is largely about how women find their own channels of power and what men fear about women and women's sexuality. Writing the book in 1973, I was fully aware of what women's liberation implied for me and others of my sex. The book is, in its more adult implications, an uneasy masculine shrinking from a future of female equality. For me, Carrier White is a sadly misused teenager, an example of the sort of person whose spirit is so often broken for good in that pit of man and woman eaters that you're, that is your normal suburban high school. But she's also woman feeling her powers for the first time and like Samson pulling down the temple on everyone inside at the end of the book heavy turgid stuff but in the novel it's only there if you want to take it and look De Palma took it um he says uh King loves this again like I was saying before and he kind of threw some shade at anyone who would try to replicate it in 2011 and he said that he told uh, Entertainment Weekly um <laughs> I've heard rumblings about a Carrie remake as I have of, uh, about the Stan and it who knows if it'll happen the real question is why when the original is so good, I mean, not Casablanca or anything, but a really good horror suspense film, much better than the book. So, um, sorry, Stephen, they remade it, but um, <laughs> and it wasn't very good. Not oh, good. it was. Uh, but uh, they did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In 2013, I believe, with Chloe yeah. Grace Moretz, which and is Julian uh, Moore. Yeah. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. it was a huge missed opportunity too, because I feel like there is so much like fertile ground for talk to talk about bullying with a new generation and new methods of bullying and just. Well, there's talk of like a new of a new series, right? Mm-hmm. On FX, they want to do a Carrie series, which would be the second know. one technically, because yeah, because yeah, they did. Brian Fuller wrote one in 2002. And was definitely more bold into the book because they actually have a lot of the deposition scenes and stuff that's, um, you know, makes it the epistolary novel. But um, I mean, this is the beginning, though. I mean, it's kind of wild to think because we've talked so much about King movies over the last five years doing this podcast. But when you go back to 1976 and just the production of this movie, it's wild to think how much of it happened in real time with King's success. So the book was published on April 5th, 1974. It sold about 300,000 copies in its print run. Only four months later, it already had been picked up for rights of the, the, as a, to make a movie. So producer Paul Monash, who had executive produced Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid only five years prior, he optioned the rights for uh, $45,000. Um, and he worked with uh, Cohen on the script. They won over United Artists. They snagged De Palma. Production began in February of 1976, and the film was out in theaters that year. So, I mean, pretty wild how fast this all came. And when you think about where it led, this seems like this is the highest watermark for King, right? I mean, he goes and works for De Palma. He works with Toby Hooper right after this. He does Stanley Kubrick with The Shining, and then he gets George Romero for Creepshow, Louis Teague for Cujo, and Cronenberg for The Dead Zone. Cronenberg, yeah. I mean... I don't know. Like, I mean, I know we've had Shawshank later on and we've had it obviously was a blockbuster, but would you call, I mean, Randall, you think this is the best run for Stephen King at this point in terms of popularity? Well, yeah, because the, you know, to borrow a phrase, the, the kind of um, space hadn't been flooded with shit yet. You know, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. like, uh, I mean, King writes is so prolific that th- there's so much material to adapt. And I think that, for a while we we got all these great movies in a row but then we get 
you know, as it goes on, the great stuff becomes the rarer, the like the the rarer thing, whereas all these straight to, you know, VHS movies start coming out that are based on his material that just aren't very good. Yeah. Um, so I think in terms of a great run in terms of impeccable movies, yeah, like that early one is the best. There's still great stuff to come, but there's so much other shit flooding the space. Mm-hmm. Jen, do you think, is this your favorite stretch of King movies? Probably. Right yeah, I think so. They're, they are not, like, none of them in this stretch are my favorites. Like, the, I have a couple of later ones. But yeah, this is, it's just, it's such a great run. And I feel like it's a great run of books, too. You know, like, you don't really start to get into the ones that are being critically received until, I think, Christine, maybe. And I even still love that book. And so, like, you're having these movies that are coming out, working with these fantastic directors, and the movies being hits. And then you're also having hit books coming out that just keep like and new and inventive books like this is definitely my favorite stretch of king books i yeah. think yeah what about you colleen i mean having read a lot of his books like in the you know especially the the, the bigger you know the bigger books are these you know like would you say like carrie the shining um this area of his of his work is is one that you think that you think of when you think of stephen king yeah definitely i i only like the big uh the big popular ones no, that's fine. I mean, that's it makes sense though. Yeah. I mean, like there's a ubiquity to a lot of these books for a reason, I feel, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pet Cemetery is definitely my favorite book and movie. And um I'm I'm pretty familiar with like Cujo, Pet Cemetery, The Shining, um to a lesser degree Carrie. Um but yeah, that's that's definitely my my most known time. Yeah. Um and I and thinner is probably my least favorite. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. Um, Not very good, especially when you start getting into like this Italian friend that comes in. It's like <laughs> Andrew <laughs> Dice Clay shows up to the book. You're like, what the fuck is this? Um, yep. uh, let's talk about De Palma um, because I feel like you know when you look back at just all the talent involved in this, it's. Uh, I mean, this is De Palma's baby, right? And this was only this was his tenth film already. But what's crazy about this being his tenth film is that he really wasn't a name yet. Like he had, he was, you know, he had had done his work, he'd had his resume, um, but he wasn't a blockbuster name. And in fact, like you know, like Monash, like Paul Monash didn't want him, and it was actually United Artists that actually pushed De Palma. And I think it was a wise choice because he's coming off a string of wildly ambitious pictures. You got like black comedies like Hi Mom and Get to Know Your Rabbit, psychological thrillers like Sisters and Obsession, and the rock and roll now midnight masterpiece, which is Phantom of the Paradise. And I would argue you'd see all the pieces of those films in Carrie. Um, but what do you make of his eye and direction here, Randall? I mean, we talked a little bit over text today, just little moments that we love in this, but... Um, do you think this is one of De Palma's greatest films still? Well, I wish that I was more familiar with De Palma. I I have a I've seen a handful of his films and I watched Sisters for the first time a couple months ago. And it's I, I think it might be one of my favorite horror movies I've ever seen. He's he's absolutely incredible and he understands tone, mm-hmm. um, I think, so well. I, one of the things I've forgotten about Carrie was that it's really funny at times yeah. and it's actually a little goofy at times. Like and there's such an operatic quality to it as well. I mean, especially in the final moments, the score and um, the framing of Piper Laurie as she's walking with the knife and the smile on her face. Like there's something camp. And I mean, people have picked up on the camp aspects of this movie, but there's something camp and there's something, um, um, I don't know, like theatrical about it that I can see why they made it into a musical. Um, 
it's a it's an incredibly uh well structured film and uh realized film but just the way that it's able to navigate um the goofiness of i think teens in high school and remain true to that while also touching on these themes of of isolation and and you know christianity and repression and all of these other things in ways that are very potent um it's just gorgeously realized and so uh and yeah you see as some of the tricks that De Palma was known for I mean the the split screen yeah. during the prom is is really effective and it helps uh take a really chaotic situation and show multiple lenses and also amp up the disorientation um but I think a lot of it has to do too with um the character building and uh I I feel like I have such a great sense of Carrie and her mother uh throughout this and they they both occupy these spaces that are very theatrical and very um, heightened, but at the same time, there's a vulnerability at the heart of them. So yeah, yeah. I don't know. So I, I one of my main goals, like for the next year, is to watch more De Palma because everything I've seen by him, I love except for Mission to Mars. Definitely watch. Well, <laughs> definitely watch. Uh, hey, Mission to Mars, Tim Robbins, uh, <laughs> King's Dominion. Um, but <laughs> I definitely watch uh, the Noah Baumbach documentary about him. Oh, I've it's, seen it. It's yeah. fucking great. Um, it's, yeah. just, it's such a thrill. It's just like literally him talking with clips between but it's so much fun um colleen what's what stood out to you with de palma's eye here um well in the in the email you sent you mentioned um he has like a voyeuristic lens Mm -hmm. and um like i said i watched the movie for the first time years and years ago and didn't really remember too much of it but i rewatched it in anticipation of this podcast and then since reading your email and like thinking about that more that kind of clicked for me like um a lot of the shots are either from from overhead or from above or um are from like behind a tree and there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of like peeping tom kind of like vibes there and um i don't know yeah i thought that was that was pretty spot on um also I was wondering, I don't know if you guys know this, but is this what they're watching in Knocked Up? Like, there's a. I don't remember. I haven't seen Knocked Up in years, but I love that movie. I think it is, actually. Yeah. They have that website. Yes, it is. It is. Yeah. In the beginning. (laughs) For years, I was like, what the hell movie are they watching there? And I think. Yeah, it's the, the locker room scene. It is, at the beginning. yeah, because that's what they're doing, like the Mr. Skin website, right? Or, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. It's the highest concentration of boobs, probably. Like. <laughs> but yeah. uh, I haven't seen any other Brian De Palma movies at all. Yeah, the voyeuristic thing is interesting because in his real life when he was young, he knew his dad was cheating on his mom and he set up hidden cameras to catch his dad and uh, was basically spying on him. And... Uh, uh, that that wow. like influenced a lot of his early movies and uh and his general style of filming was the idea of surveillance mm-hmm. um and voyeurism v- creeping into his movies and because i think you know that experience burned itself into him when he was oh, young you yeah know? yeah i mean because even then like he made a career out of it by like being a documentarian for hire i mean like some yeah. of his earliest gigs were doing stuff for like the moma um in new york and you know doing like little mini document documentaries for it and you get a sense even just looking at some of the footage from that that he's so obsessed with point of view with of multiple angles of people you know like what you're seeing is different from what someone else is seeing and i think he gets at that big time with the later film like blow up with uh john travolta which is a really good film but 
um i feel like he yeah he i think what he does here that's great about it is that that sense that that you were discussing earlier jen is that you do in high school you do always feel like someone's watching you you do always mm -hmm. feel like you have your guard up because of that like oh am i gonna make or am i gonna do something stupid that's gonna make me embarrassed you know or, or mm -hmm. make me feel embarrassed and is someone or you know you feel vulnerable at that time and i feel like De palma does capture that well um mm -hmm. that 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 lingering notion of just like whatever's happening is 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 someone's gonna see it you know which mm -hmm. today feels a little prescient because i feel like nowadays everyone does feel as if i mean nowadays everyone is watching you <laughs> like <laughs> we have fucking cameras everywhere at this point so i mean it, it does make sense um jen what do you what, what about you uh, what, what are the what are some of your thoughts on de palma's direction um, well, I'm not a, a super um, expert on De Palma. I've seen Dress to Kill, which I did enjoy, even though I know it's problematic. And yeah. I've seen a couple of his other ones. But what I think is really interesting with Carrie is that there is such a clear visual style here. And I think like there's a, like a soft focus to the camera and a there's probably some like real camera word that I'm missing, but like that feels like nostalgia, even though it's not shot through the lens of nostalgia. So I watch this and it feels like watching memories of my high school, you know. Um, but what I think is really fascinating and it's the thing that I think a lot of Stephen King uh, adaptations fail is that they don't understand the material they don't understand what makes something a Stephen King movie or a Stephen King story and we just talked about Pet Cemetery, which I think feels like very very Stephen King and this does not necessarily feel like Stephen King but it feels like Carrie it feels like he really understands the source material he really understands what story he's telling but it also really feels like a De Palma film like it feels like he has his own visual style and I think that he just really really fantastically marries the two like he it is still his movie but he is really accurately bringing the story to life as opposed to something like The Shining too which feels like a Kubrick movie to me and it doesn't feel like the book you know yeah he definitely got <laughs> <laughs> he definitely got a little bit of heaven and hell within like four or five years of being in Hollywood. Cause I mean, he did have mm -hmm. to sell away everything and by doing this, you know, and he, you know, he's 26 years old and he sells these rights. He didn't get much. I think it was around $2,500 or something like that, which is kind of staggering considering the money that this, you know, this movie made. But what it does is catapult King into being the blockbuster author. Um, so I think in the long run it worked out for him, but I, I do think that it is uh, funny that he did, you know, exercise his creative control and De Palma did really land it for it because like I, you know, having read the book multiple times, I, I would agree that I do think that this does capture the spirit of the book. Um, and I think what really works in that sense is um, that like King, De Palma's really big on building character. And I think mm -hmm. unlike King, um, but something that most filmmakers struggle with with putting too much exposition because they try to stick too closely or hem too closely to the book is that oftentimes you know all the characterization we get in king is um kind of fumbles out onto the screen because people are either you know using too much dialogue or you know the characters are too much of an archetypes or you know they're larger than life and what i like about de palma's style in this movie especially this early on in his career um, is that again, what I was saying before is there's so much showing and, and, and no, and not telling, like, think about the opening scene, like the opening scene sets up everything you need to know within what, 30 seconds. And also the type of characters that you're going to know, you know, like, I mean, 
just that even just PJ Souls walking by and hitting her with the hat. Like it's such a fucking great just portrait that you mm-hmm. get. And you get that throughout the whole movie. I mean, like you're talking about the 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 foregrounding, right? With like the the you know, Carrie in the background and like Tommy in the front. And even in those scenes, Tommy doesn't even have to say anything for us to know exactly what type of person he is, where, you know, he's he's amused at the fact that he's done this poem in class. And the minute the teacher turns on Carrie, you see that amusement turn to despair and actually like frustration. And he's angry at the the teacher. And like, well, that teacher thing is such a dick. I know yes. he's such an asshole. Um, but again, it's it's uh, it, it's it's showing versus versus telling. And I think that's one of the strongest qualities of this of this movie. But I, I mean, again, it's all it's 70s filmmaking, like 70s. It's the best era. This is what they, you know, they capitalize on big time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I digress. I mean, I, I think that's one of my favorite parts about his direction is just that he does allow the camera to speak because he knows how to let he knows the language of the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, Randall, you talked a lot about the tone and and I, and I think that's one of the things also that really works in this because De Palma, when you talk, when he talks about movies, he's usually talking about um, kind of like Scorsese. Um, he's talking about his influences and those that brought him to his obsession with celluloid. And more often than not, that obsession of his uh, translates on screen. Like you can see and you can pick apart things that he's definitely taken from past films, like his iconic sequence in the untouchables, which involves a baby carriage is literally taken from battleship Potemkin. And like in this, there's like, you know, wide swaths of, of Hitchcock, you know, like he's the, even the fucking house, the white household looks like the Bates hotel, like the Bates motel house in, in like the, the mother where the mother is. And, you know, um, he uses the stingers from psycho. Um, yeah. but one of the things I do think that he does well is he, t- he manages those tones that you're talking about and uses them to build tension, which is something that Hitchcock did really well. And what I think is really smart, um, about his table setting is that in addition to building the character, like I was discussing before, he's keeping that tension elevated by almost like sequestering you from the what's inevitably going to happen like you know he's just pushing you towards the cliff without with and distracting you enough so that when you do fall off the cliff your heart is going out of your you know your mouth like a fucking like a looney tunes character and i and i and i think he does it with you know the comedy when you see those montages even carrie kind of feels like a human being there and then you get that dramatic moment where you know carrie's talking to people at the prom and she feels like a human being and and then he just keeps on them, just Carrie and Tommy the entire time and has that wonderful scene with Kate Irving's song playing when they're twirling around, twirling around, you still stay on her. And then by the time you get up there and the, bu- the bucket happens, it really does feel like a needle drop moment, like a, like, or like a mic drop moment where it's just like, mm-hmm. well, we led you there. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know. I mean, that could be so fucked up in other hands i mean jen we were talking texting today and you're saying this scene is like what five minutes before the build-up to, <laughs> to the- yeah i love the um it, it's almost comical at a certain point like the shadow of her like pulling on the rope and then the side eyes where you can kind of see it and it's in such slow motion that it's like intoxicating you know and you know what's gonna happen because i mean 
we know the story. And even when this movie came out, I feel like the story was pretty well known. Like we know what's going to happen. Um, but you still get caught up. Like there's part of me that's like, oh, see, Sue's going to show her that they're down there. Or is Sue going to get caught? Or is somebody going to find it? And I was like, oh, is Tommy going to be mad that Sue's there? Is Sue mad that Tommy just kissed Carrie? Like there are so many details in that five minutes that is really just waiting for somebody to pull the, like dump the pig's blood on her that you just get, caught up in it and then when it does happen it is just so like you're you knew it was coming the whole time but you're still not ready for it yeah you know? yeah well it's like what De Palma says in the, the doc I mentioned before it's a uh, Hitchcock he says as Hitchcock says it's always the run-up that's interesting and as you see in my mm -hmm. movies the run-up takes forever um yeah. Jen you mentioned uh a bunch of characters names Oh, <laughs> yes. You know, um, and traditionally we, you know, we, we discuss music here, but I'm, I think we could say that for the dreamscape section for now though, we've got a bunch of high school brats to gossip about. Some of them are good. <laughs> some of them are bad, really bad. You might say they could be broken down into, uh, heroes and villains. I'm going to have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the losers club, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and Heroes and Villains, we talked about the cast. And looking at the cast, uh, you know, especially after the crew, Carrie kind of feels like the salad days for everyone involved. I mean, Sissy Spacek, John Travolta, Nancy Allen, Stephen King, even De Palma, who, as I discussed before, he became a name after the, this becoming a hit. It almost feels like this movie is like a high school yearbook for this generation in itself. And I feel like that kind of adds a lot of, um, you know, it adds a certain quality in depth mm -hmm. to this I feel like because you're you're almost watching a bunch of kids on screen in a way and in, in a sense a lot of kids were making them behind the scenes um let's address digress on some of these names Sissy Spacek as uh Carrie White you know wasn't the first choice um Betsy Slade uh from Our Time was originally this, the, the 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 choice um Spacek at the time was a real unknown you know she was married to the film's art director Jack Fisk um and she was a set dresser and uh, De Palma said the studio didn't want Spacek in the role, but um, Sissy Spacek fought really hard for it. In fact, she went to like method lengths to get it. Um, in her memoir, My Extraordinary Ordinary Life, she said, I wanted this part so badly I could taste it. I got ready for the test by not showering and smearing Vaseline in my hair. I rummaged through my trunks and found a pale blue sailor dress that my mother had someone make for me in seventh grade. I looked like a total dork, and that was the point. And then that method nature translated to behind the scenes when she actually got the role because she isolated herself from the rest of the ensemble she decorated her dressing room with heavy religious iconography um and she she actually studied the bible um so i mean clearly she went all out um and i don't really think that this is like a paint on her overalls ordeal like most of the other adaptations of carrie i do feel like she's an outcast but what do you all think of her turn? Um, Jen, what, what, is this the Carrie that you saw when you read the book? Yeah, and I mean, I had seen the movie before I read the book, so this has always felt like Carrie to me. But yeah, I think she really kind of embodies this part. And it's 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 not one of the cases like she's all that, where it's like clearly an attractive person, and then she just takes her glasses off, and she's, you know, not In a nerd morning. anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she yeah, and she like shakes her head out. Yeah. Um yeah, she feels like she is really an outcast. I mean, there are moments where I don't know if I love her in all the way through, but I I also like her accent. Like I'm 
fairly critical of Southern accents, and I enjoy her in this role. I think she's great. Yeah. yeah. And I think especially in the end, like, as pretty as she is, and then, like, just how horrific she looks in the end, it just gives you chills, you know? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, no, no, don't. No. Colleen, what, what are your thoughts on uh, Sissy Spacek's character? Is this how, um, do you feel like she embodies the outcast really well? Do you believe it? Yeah, I think she's perfect. Um, I, I would describe her face as haunted. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I think she, she was like a perfect Stephen King, um, Stephen King character. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree about the accent though. Like, and her mom kind of has a weird accent too. Like, where is this supposed to take place? Well, that's just, uh, a, it's interesting too. Cause it's in the book, it's Maine for sure. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I was actually trying to figure that out if it does take place in like California. Cause like so many of the adaptations around this time, they would just pivot over to like mm-hmm. the West coast just because they could only film there. Yeah. Um, it looks like Southern California or like, I don't know, central California, maybe. But then mm-hmm. the the mother and Carrie both have like maybe Midwestern to yeah. the Southern accents ish, but like, nobody else does. I don't know. Yeah. Mom has like kind of like that stage English kind of, yeah. you know, like Catherine <laughs> Hepburn kind of, you know, like this, which is I kind of like because it makes her feel like she's not a part of the time, you know, like she kind of exists outside of the rest of the the community, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, oh, go for it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that I think that Carrie um, is. Uh, I mean, I think Sissy Spacek plays her as like a pretty normal teenager, like mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes. Um, especially compared with the rest of the people, like the rest of the teenagers in the movie are fucking weird and like scary <laughs> and evil, and yeah, just really weird. Um, but she's actually like pretty rational, I think, for most of. It, um, but she's clearly, like you said, like pushed to the edge of the cliff and you can kind of like, she just, she tries to deal with everything in a rational manner. Um, and just, she tries and it just doesn't work and she gets pushed to the edge. And that's something I I really like about a lot of Stephen King books, um, too, is that they're, they're about like people being pushed to the brink of insanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think I like what you said about the teenagers being weird uh, and Carrie being more normal because I feel very similar in that she doesn't act like it's you know I think in a lot like you look at like she's all that right like you brought that up she's like a performance artist right who works at a fast food place and, <laughs> and all this other thing like she's a total freak and then uh, but here like Carrie is pretty normal like the weirdest thing about her is she's getting a book about sewing out you know which is like what a nerd you know but <laughs> but the thing is like she actually acts like a teenager who is a little bit insecure a lot of the other girls like act like adults you know what I mean like like Chris like acts like she's in her 20s mm-hmm. and um and a lot of the other girls I think do too and and Mike you pointed this out and we joked about it over the thread but just like how beautiful everyone is mm-hmm. in this movie that's I think what contributes a lot to Sissy being because she looks like a normal person and like everyone else in this is so beautiful like comically beautiful and I think that contributes to I think a certain level of uh, dreaminess and um, a heightened quality that I think uh, really helps once Carrie is ushered into 
kind of the cool people. Like when when uh, Tommy takes her to prom, there's a magical quality mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. Like when they slow dance and they have this conversation and the camera is whirling about them as they're turning faster and faster. And then he kisses her, which I've always been like, why does he kiss her? Because this is just one night he's dating Sue and like does he know what he's doing or is he really taken with her like is he falling in love with her or isn't he and the i used to always wonder about that answer but we now debated I, a lot of it on the book episode i remember that but i what i like about it now when i think about it is like it doesn't need to be true or not like because it exists in this magical little bubble yes. that mm-hmm. I think is partly real and partly Carrie's dream coming true of Mm -hmm. being accepted. And it's sort of like she gets swept up in this fantasy and that's portrayed so explicitly, I think during the prom scene and then her going up on stage, everybody cheering for her and then how quickly the fantasy is shattered. And then suddenly, cause we're still in a fantasy when everybody's laughing at her Mm -hmm. because like in her mind, everyone is laughing at her, but I think it's not, you know, I like that De Palma doesn't let us in on what's real and what's not mm-hmm. because it's unclear. And, and that's the thing. I think that contributes too to why she kills the gym teacher mm-hmm. uh, when she doesn't in the book is because in her mind, everyone is laughing at her, not just a few people. And mm-hmm. so she, in her mind, she sees the gym teacher laughing. So she has to kill her too, even if the gym teacher wasn't laughing, which I would assume she wasn't. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so... I love that heightened magical kind of quality. And I think that's achieved to some degree by making the cast outside of Carrie look so much older and more beautiful. You know what I mean? Like more traditionally mm-hmm. beautiful. Yeah. So that's my thought about the ensemble of the movie. What about, um, here's the question though. I mean, are we rooting for Carrie though? Or are you kind of just horrified at the end or is it both? Oh, well, I'm, I'm not rooting Carrie for her. All the way. <laughs> <laughs> I know you are, Jen. I know. What did you say, Colleen? I am, yeah. I yeah. root for Carrie. Yeah. I think I am too. Right? Yeah. I, I was wondering about that today because I, I watched it again just because, uh, you know, I usually watch this movie like three or four times before doing these. And about halfway through, I'm like, yeah. And I, I wondered how, how the, the, you know, audiences in the 70s were feeling. If they were actually like horrified or if they felt at the end they were like clapping. You know, I've we've seen this in theaters and I don't recall anyone clapping and stuff because I think after I think we also live in a totally different world now. I mean, we, we don't have to go into, mm-hmm. you know, the the you know the violence at schools and stuff like that. But, you know, back in the 70s, I wouldn't be surprised if there was applause of just like, yeah, she got him. Right. Yeah. Well, I think the complicated thing is we don't know. Like, yeah, she got. Uh, Chris, like it's great when she blows up Chris and Billy's car, but I think the the thing that makes it a little bit troubling is that not everyone is laughing at her, that's or true. at least mm-hmm. that's what we're I think we're assuming, but we're only seeing it through her eyes during that scene. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so in her mind, everyone is laughing and they all deserve it. But I think as the audience member who has been on this journey, you know that a lot of people are being swept up into this that aren't complicit, you know? And uh, so it's great that she, but the thing is they also point to, and this is more so in the book, I think, than, uh, than the, um, 
the movie, but it's like there are no innocents, right? Like mm-hmm. in this school, mm-hmm. because oh God, no, it's, it. it's a it's a systemic sort of bullying yeah. that she's enduring too, and we get at that a little bit with the teacher who like gives her shit just for saying something's beautiful. Like everyone is on her ass, and so yeah. in that sense, you are happy to see the the school get taken down in in this way. But I think the movie, uh, you know, we they it, like Tommy's friends are very much framed as good guys yeah. in this movie, you know, yeah. and so mm-hmm. it's shocking when we see them laugh. But the thing is. Are they laughing or aren't they? So, well, the performance it, worked. Oh no, sorry, go for it. Yeah, it kind of um, to me, uh, it kind of like all revolves around like the Bible, though, too. Like people reaping what they sow. Like I feel like mm-hmm. um, there are no innocents in the Bible. Everybody on Earth is a sinner, and yeah. like. Um, I think that Carrie doesn't even necessarily like deliberately do a lot of the things like with her telekinesis. It just kind of like happens to the people who like have it coming or maybe like sinned in some way and like deserved it. Like I don't, I definitely don't think she means to kill her mother at the end. Spoiler alert. Sorry. No, you go for it. If if you haven't seen it and you're like, like, she feels bad. Like she tries, you know, she hugs her and takes the knives out and everything like that. And um, I don't know. Yeah. She can't control the power. Yeah. She can't control it. it, yeah, it's it's a born of her of heightened emotions that you feel as a teenager. Like yeah. she she's possessed with something that, you know, it's just like, you know, it's the whole it's the the puberty idea, right? Like I'm suddenly possessed of these qualities that I now cannot control. Yeah. Like my sexual like if you want to look at it through the lens of sexuality, it's like it's like these are overwhelming feelings and I don't know how to process them. And then it's yeah. like manifesting in these crazy violent ways. And they just combust, which is what I love. And I, I, no surprise that I absolutely love Carrie because she feels like Charlie McGee's older sister. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. And I also, like, I grew up reading Matilda, which is my other, one of my favorite books, which is another character that is really kind of ignored. And she has these telekinetic powers. And I swear one day I'm going to figure out how to move things with my mind. Um, but like, <laughs> it does, it's so, like, really small. What'd you say? I thought you were going to say one day you're going to figure out how to write really small. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I love that book. Um, but yeah, I I feel like it is it. I'm so in Carrie's shoes and in her head in this story, because especially just like as a girl and having dealt with a lot of shit, you know, it's it feels so cathartic when she does really burn it all down. Mm-hmm. You know, that is this is the epitome of a burn it all down story, which is one of my favorite things. Um, and it in a lot of ways, I kind of look at it like the Matrix, you know, like if if given the opportunity, a person would turn against someone to defend the system system they're a part of because there's comfort in that system and I think like Carrie has been like this is not the first year everybody's been mean to her like her entire life she's been dealing with this shit and I imagine like she just finally snaps and she's like fuck it you know and I also think in the book like she destroys the entire town she does so there's (laughs) like and there's I remember there's the moment where in the book where she says and that's the moment Carrie went over because she makes the choice to go back into the gym and then kill everyone and we don't really get that here no this feels like an explosion rather than like tactical things but yeah yeah, controlled demolition yeah yeah yeah, but man, Team Carrie. Well, let's talk about all the way. Team Margaret. Um, because <laughs> Piper Laurie, 
wild, wild career for her. Uh, we talked a little bit about her before. I, this is her first role since 1961 as The Hustler. De Palmer had to bring her out of retirement. And this is, I think this quote is really important because I think this kind of says a lot about the performance that we could talk about. She honestly thought her character was too over the top. She thought it was too fanatical to be taken seriously. And De Palma had to kind of take her to the side and personally tell her it was a horror film and not a black comedy because she yeah. honestly thought it was. And because she would like, well, it is, a, it is absurd. It like, is absurd. Like, right. Yeah. And yeah. So I wonder, what do you, where do you stand? Do you, do you, do you also agree with her? Because I kind of do. I feel like it's a little too much of a caricature at points. I think that makes it work. You know? Yeah. I I think that the mother is the most horrifying part of the entire movie oh, for yeah. me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it like you were talking about Hitchcock before and um like especially the part where she's like hitting Carrie in the face with the Bible repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Like that part like is like goes on for so long and is so fucking stressful to me. It, it feels like the part in the birds where like she's just getting fucking assaulted by all yeah. the birds for like five minutes or like, I don't know. There's like this, ugh, I don't even know what movie it is, but it's a C. Thomas Howell movie. And he puts a tennis ball in a guy's mouth and waits for him to suffocate on it. And it takes like forever for the guy to die. And it's extremely okay. stressful. And that's what that part in Carrie reminds me of. Mm. And it's like completely terrifying to me. Mm-hmm. She definitely is the source of horror. And I think, yeah. you know, I, I, we have a, we'll visit the cemetery very shortly to uh, discuss some of her scenes in there. Um, but I do think that there are moments of the film where it, it, and I guess maybe she has to be this gregarious and larger than life to kind of really get the, the, the point across. Um, I just wonder, I mean, it's been a few years since I've read the book, but I don't remember like Margaret White being this. Maybe she is in the book. I don't know. Randall, what do you... I mean, she uh, she's like, uh, she's more human mm-hmm. in the book, but here she's sort of a creature, yeah. right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. she's a monster. And we never see a moment of genuine uh, caring no. from her, whereas we do in the book to some degree. But it's like... Uh, she's such a comically evil presence. Um, and, and there, and I love it. I love her performance so much. I think she's fantastic in this movie, but it undoubtedly contributes to, I think sort of the camp totally of this movie, because there is something so like soap opera about her, especially in the final moments in terms of how, um, like the way she carries the knife, the, and like, you can see the black comedy aspect in that final moment when she's like stabbing Carrie, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there is this like lunatic, uh, a glint in her eye. Like she's just been revealed. Like she, uh, you know, is stealing some oil barons money or something, you know, it feels very much like so heightened. And, uh, mm-hmm. I absolutely love that about it. And her performance is great, but it is definitely pitched a little bit higher than I think everybody else in this movie intentionally, because, um, yeah, she's not just, uh, Carrie's mother and she's not just a villain. She is like a creature from hell. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and compare her to Julianne Moore, who is in the remake. And Julianne Moore is a phenomenal actress, um, but she plays it so much more realistic. Mm -hmm. And it's really sad and not effective and a letdown. And I feel like there is a delusional quality to Margaret in this that makes it more scary. And that's why when she has that look on her face, when she's walking down the stairs to like to stab Carrie, it is really, really unsettling. 
and scary because you feel like she is like untethered from reality in that moment. She is not a murderer. She is like delusional, a delusional murderer. And I think the thing it's being the person that I am, it's hard for me to view her outside of the lens of trauma. So I watch this now and she like screams like repressed trauma, repressed trauma. Oh yeah. At the end too. Well, Mm -hmm. she's like giving admissions that in ways that she didn't before. Right. Oh, totally. Yeah. And like everything that she does screams like a reaction to something terrible that has happened to her before. And it's like, she just lives in this, in her own world because she has not dealt with any of this. Like there's so much self loathing there um so much hatred of just who she fundamentally is and who her daughter is that it's it's just fascinating like this was the moment where i was like i want to write a book about this because there are just a billion words about Myth- carrie white th- and uh, margaret white i think it's also scary too because you know after all of this oh god i mean chaos that happens at the prom Carrie has to come home to this. <laughs> so it's right. Like, it's like you think the horrific part is the prom. And yeah. Then, yeah. No. And then it's this. And it really does feel as if Margaret White is this skeleton, t- skeleton key for what they're trying to talk about with bullying in this movie. Because what she's saying, what she believes is, um, you know, I mean, she's basically talks about, oh, well, pimples are, you know, they're, they, they lead to chastity and all this other stuff. And it's just like, Jesus Christ. Like she's, she's <laughs> essentially, she's just, she believes that her bullying is for the good. And that feels like such a larger systemic, like we were talking about systemic bullying. Like that feels like this, this movie's way of commenting on that. Yeah. Just, it's like institutional bullying, yes. like the, you know, like uh, Christian bullying, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, yeah. And, the, and it's taken to such like an intense degree um, that I don't know, I think suits the high pitch of the whole film as well. So well, yeah, let's talk about the corollary couples. Um, we got Amy Irving as Sue Snell, William Cat as Tommy <laughs> Ross. Uh, I mean, is this a real couple? I mean, do they? It, it seems like they, you know, they're trying we to do good here. Barely see them together. Yeah, I love I love Tommy so much. I do he's too. The, Me he too. Is the, he is the purest hunk. I wish I was him when I was in high school. I wanted to be friends mm-hmm. with him. Uh, I, he is he is a ray of blinding light, mm-hmm. and I adore him. Does mm-hmm. he die? Yes, he does yes. die, and it's very sad. But here's, they say mm-hmm. he died at the end of the movie. They do, but what is? Does he die from the bucket, or does he die from the burning? Which is in the book, he dies from the bucket. Uh, yeah, I think he does, and that's like when we were talking about innocence. Like, if there is an innocent in this, I think it is Tommy. So mm-hmm. you could look at what Carrie does as kind of vengeance for Tommy, or like payback to you know. What do you think is going through his head when he sees uh, Sue like under the stage? He's kind of like he does this look, and I I almost wish that it was like the you know like the gif of um of Blink One Eighty Two with uh, Mark Long when she's just like what the fuck like I wish that he was I wish he did <laughs> right. that like, like what is this? Yeah, I mean, did nobody think to investigate what she's pointing to? On I know well, that's is a, the uh, thing that's crazy kills me every time. But the thing is like it's his reaction to her is almost a non-reaction, mm-hmm. which I kind of love because it points to the idea that she is puncturing the magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's puncturing the magic bubble that exists and they are not acknowledging her because they, she is outside of what reality they are currently existing in. It's the blood that shatters the bubble, you know? And it's the, and the moment that she's him. out. Like yeah. that's when the bucket drops is when she is out of the bubble. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Is, I texted you about Tommy today, Mike, and I said I just kept wanting to say no means no, Tommy. Like she <laughs> said no the first time. He shows up at her house, and like that could have gotten her like really in trouble or very like 
very severely beaten or you know like, yeah but i think once alone. i think once margaret saw tommy she'd be like okay that's a handsome fellow right <laughs> i mean he is, like, yeah you'll like him mom i promise it's like you yeah. know uh we could leave god out of this uh this <laughs> night for just one you know right um right. do we consider uh sue snell a final girl though no no yeah. No, I don't think she's so. kind of she's a big part of the she's a big part of the book, but she's more of a narrator in the book, mm-hmm. and here she doesn't really get to do that. So she kind of serves her purpose at the beginning and then kind of fades out. Yeah, yeah. I love Sue. I think she is so fascinating. Like I think of her. I've for the past couple of reads been thinking of her as an unreliable narrator like does she want us to think she's better than she is how much was she actually involved and it's a little different in the book because we get so much of her first person like description of what happens and here we kind of just see it but I just think like did she really think this was going to be a good plan and I don't know I, I just think she is so fascinating yeah Colleen what are your thoughts on Tommy and Sue is Tommy the greatest high school guy ever put to screen? Uh, and it's a big question. I don't think so. No. <laughs> I'm not into him at all. I mean, he's cool. He's, he's, he's like a sweet kid or whatever. Yeah. Um, just the, the, I don't know, the casting of William Cat, who I know as the guy from house. That's um, true. Yeah. That's <laughs> how old is he in this movie? Cause that's the one thing I like could never get past is like, is this guy like 35? I know. <laughs> He was 26, 25, 26 already when they, they, they did this movie. But that's what I'm saying is okay, they so all look they all look way too old to be in high school, which I think contributes to sort of the magic quality, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess in the 70s, that's pretty much 35 years old. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Uh, 70s years. Uh, yeah. Well, the greatest American high schooler. Because it's funny because it's like but, Sue Snell's mother or Sue Snell, Amy, Amy Irving's mother actually played her mother in the movie. And her mother looks like she's like probably pushing 50, 60 years old in this. And it's like, I just mm-hmm. don't know if that's if the disparity was right there. So I don't know. I agree with you. <laughs> um, in terms of Sue, I kind of feel like uh, the person who's doing the most is, I don't know, like the one, like, She's like, she's like not the top tier mean girl like Chris is. And that's why she like was the one you have to watch out for. Mm-hmm. She was like trying harder to maybe fit in with, with Chris and, and all those other, all the other cool girls. Mm-hmm. She flies under the radar. She's almost like the middle yeah. middle ground, right? Like if there's like a barometer of something, you know, just or like a litmus. <laughs> test for the, the the high school swath of cool in a way or mm-hmm. uncool it's like maybe she's like right in the middle or something i don't know mm-hmm. like has to be that gray area i guess mm-hmm. um let's go to the red hot then because Cuckoo. let's talk about chris hardison and um billy nolan john travolta Just call him john travolta john travolta yeah, right <laughs> I, I mean kind of wild to see John Travolta this young i mean he was coming off the first season of welcome back cotter great year actually for him he had a hit single on the Billboard Hot 100 that year. Uh, the man can do it all. He can do it all. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of wild. Like, I mean, he'd become an icon a year later because of Saturday Night Fever. Um, and then definitely two years later after that with Grease. But, I mean, you watch this movie and it's kind of impossible not to see him be a movie star, right? Like, he literally mm-hmm. just beams throughout this whole... I just don't necessarily buy him as, like, this the evil person that he is in the book. <laughs> I just don't. Like, I- Yeah. He seems too dumb. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I, yeah, I, I like the dumbness, but he also just there's like a puppy dog quality to him, right? Like yeah. you want to pet his, you want to like ruffle his hair, like mm-hmm. uh, whereas he's kind of a he's a real scumbag in the book that character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah. I don't really get that here. I almost feel like they took the 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 rage and vitriol, or like not the scummy, or not the rage and vitriol, but the scum scumminess that you just talked about, Randall, and poured it like more into Chris. It, yeah. It's like almost like they needed to lean on her to kind of embellish her qualities a little bit more. And I think that Nancy Allen does a fucking great job. Like, oh, I, yeah. You know. Talk about gorgeous, too. You know. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I feel like you don't have room for the 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 Billy Nolan that is in the book in this movie because there are yeah. so many like this movie is about the women and I don't want I don't need uh, Billy. I like that he just kind of goes along because that makes it so much more about Chris and their their relationship in the book is really fascinating. But it is a side thing. And I just think we don't have room for it here. So I like that he's more of a puppy dog and he's like, oh, OK, well, she gave me a blowjob. So I'm going to do this thing. You know? <laughs> yeah, he's just like a blunt instrument here, which I think. Yeah. works um mm-hmm. and it does keep the focus on the women i think which is important yeah uh, yeah what are you uh, calling what are your thoughts on uh on the two bullies here um the two bullies are chris and billy yeah yeah i mean i i agree that it all has to go back to the women because it kind of all starts with like the the mother um you know ranting about eve and the first yeah. sin was wicked and all that, sh- all that stuff, it kind of all ties it in. Um, and yeah, I think Billy is just like a little lap dog and kind of like goes with the flow, which is, um, I don't know, some might say the, the, the worst crime of all, you know, when good yeah. people sit by and do nothing or whatever mm-hmm. that old is. Um, yeah, I don't, Chris is like also terrifying to me. Like she is beautiful, but her face scares me. Um, and if I, if I went to high school with her, I would be terrified of her. Yeah. Um, yeah. She, yeah, she has that, I, that, 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 uh, it's like a shark almost. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. Yeah. She's, she's really scary. I also think a lot of the, the bullying in this movie seems to be kind of like an act of, um, like, like they're, they're all, the villains are all really lonely or something. Yeah. Mm. And it kind of goes back to like, like you know when when a guy would pull your hair on the playground it's because he likes you it's Mm -hmm. like I think that you know when she acts out like with the gym teacher when she slaps her she's like you can't get away with this (laughs) baby like a little spoiled brat you know a little child like acting out something that happened to her like some trauma or whatever like Jen was saying earlier and I think that with Margaret too she seems to be like a profoundly lonely person or something like at the end she's saying don't go to the prom don't leave me mm-hmm. like we'll, mm-hmm. we'll burn together and then we'll pray together like she just really 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 doesn't want to lose Carrie and um I think that's kind of like an interesting theme that seems to run throughout too yeah yeah, yeah it's almost like a Rube Goldberg experiment of like hate that happens in this movie <laughs> like there's just so much because like one of the things I do love um about the two of them um, being together is that one scene when in their car and you know heat waves playing and it feels like you're watching like dazed and confused like there's like the free mm-hmm. the freewheeling spirit of being a teenager and how you have so much youth and um you know in their case they're just kind of soaking up the life of it all and there you can you can tell that there is just this carefree notion of just they just don't i mean he's literally drinking in front he you know has the great scene with like the cars you know the cop cars right next to him and he just laughs it off 
Mm-hmm. And like that right there, there's a sort of pathos that comes with that for me. Like, uh, especially on multiple rewatches where I'm just like, it's kind of like you're saying, Colleen, where it's just like, they're, they are lonely. They are, there is this sort of like, well, we're just kind of living life. And for them, they don't really give a shit about the collateral damage, I guess, in, in that way. And I guess the movie itself kind of shows what that collateral damage can do for those that are trying to get by and get, you know, and, and live their life. And I think that's so realistic to, you know, even just high school, but just our own day to day, whether it's a workplace or whoever has a social gathering. I just feel like more often than not, one of our biggest flaws as human beings is that we just don't consider like the butterfly effect of our own actions. And, Mm -hmm. and I think that, you know, on a long enough timeline that those actions will bubble up into something like we see here um, at the end, Uh, you know, obviously telekinesis doesn't exist, but (laughs) not yet. having said that, yeah, not yet. You're going to work on that one. Right. Um, Let's talk about Miss Collins. We talked a little bit about her, but Betty Buckley, this is her debut role on screen. Here's a fun fact. We talked about age. She was only 28. <laughs> so she's only oh, wow. she's only two years older than Sissy Spacek um, and three years older than Nancy Allen, um, who are player students, which I thought was pretty funny. But um, I love this character. I think she's one of my favorite characters in the movie. Um, again, just because I was discussing before, she feels so real to me. I feel like she she has that frustration of being a teacher of of knowing how she knows Carrie's being obdurate in her ways and she's and you know knows that that's just part of her life just because you know of her upbringing and what have you but still doesn't change the fact that it's frustrating to watch someone be that juxtaposition in the social norm and the social stratosphere and knowing that as an instructor there's really nothing she can do like and I feel like that, you know, she tempers that and she tries to to lean in on the reality of things and tries to try to be empathetic, empathetic. But I do think that you get that, that, that frustration, which I love. Like, I, I think there's a lot there and there's a lot of nuance. And I think a lot of that probably speaks to her, the fact that she was a Broadway regular in real life. So I think that she brought that sort of physicality to this movie because a lot of it does kind of go into her own actions and the way that she she speaks and she's very physical with her her manner of her speech also maybe i'm thinking a little too into that but what was what it and with slapping oh. everybody in the face yeah right i mean she's really like she's really in she's probably one of the most vivid characters on screen mm-hmm. um, she's too involved with her students i know that's all i'm gonna say <laughs> i know she does feel like the only one who kind of sees objectively the entire situation you know like she is not caught up in all of the as I do agree she is too involved in her students and she is too like personally offended by what the girls do like it kind of makes you wonder what her own high school experience was like you know Mm -hmm. um but yeah she is the only one she's the only adult that we really spend any time with other than um Margaret who is like not really involved in reality at all in this movie so I do think it's an interesting lens to see everything through I like her little conversation with Chris and Sue not Chris and Sue Sue and Tommy mm-hmm. where they're like well, we don't care what other people think and she's like oh, sure yeah but like come on let's talk about what we're actually doing here you know so I like that she does I feel like she cares and she is trying to you know help Carrie but that's what makes it all so much more tragic you know uh, I hate that she dies I, I mean, I, I get know. it. I I understand it, but like, I, I just think it sucks. Although, to be fair, I wonder if her her fate here is worse or better than what it is in the book, in which she like retires from school. Oh yeah, she's haunted by like the nightmares of everything. You know. Anyway. Well, as a person who's left the classroom, I mean, 
go for. Yeah. So yeah. She's, she's probably doing better. Uh, any other thoughts on, on, uh, on the coach? Colleen, do you have any, nope. any thoughts on, uh, on, um, yeah, I mean, well, like Jen said, it's, it's kind of interesting thinking about what her own experience was like, um, because th- there's that part where she's like convincing Carrie to go to the prom basically. And they're looking in the mirror and she's, she's being like, Oh, you should, uh, you know, curl your hair and like put a little mascara on. And she's touching Carrie's face, but she's also looking at herself in the mirror and they actually zoom in on her, even though it's like about Carrie, but they zoom in on her face. And she kind of like looks lost in like her own little daydream. Like maybe she's imagining it for herself or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I could, I, I think that's, I mean, I, I agree with that. I mean, I, mm-hmm. again, it's like, there's so much that she, she says um, with, without saying anything. I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, that's what I love about her performance and uh, just hate to see her split in two, but um <laughs> <laughs> Fun fact, though, she uh, provides the voice for the uh, creepy Carrie, creepy Carrie with the little boy on the bike. So she got to be she got to be a little menace also herself. But um, I am getting a little sleepy and with some sleep comes nightmares. And oftentimes those nightmares, they breed some dreamscapes. So we're going to go to our next section and actually the next few sections are a little more lightning rounds. our next section, Nightmares and Dreamscapes. If you think your dreams are disturbing, <laughs> imagine the nightmares of Stephen King. What are you, some sort of a horror movie guy? No, Clyde, I'm a literary guy. Nightmares and Dreamscapes, we're going to share real quick what we loved and what we hated uh, about Carrie. You get one each. Uh, Randall, let's start with you. What do you love about Carrie? Um, Man... Like there's so much. I think the slow dance scene for me is my one of my favorite scenes of 70s cinema. Same. I think um, it's such a simple conversation, like of her just asking why, why, and he keeps saying like, "Well, you said my poem was beautiful," and then he's just like, "I didn't even write it," you know. And it's but there's something. I think it's just that magic bubble that I've been talking about. The way the film sort of eases into that. This sort of. Uh, perfectly this perfect night between the two of them and the romantic quality of it like just that slow dance they have to me is so intensely and charmingly like romantic and so when he kisses her it makes total sense I still find it beguiling that he does because it speaks it doesn't make sense in the larger world that we we experienced outside of the prom but within prom it makes total sense and so I think just that that sequence in particular is what I found myself incredibly like moved by when I watched it uh today and it's something that i've always loved but yeah. but yeah that and then the score but i think you're going to talk about the score so no i mean yeah that I, I will in a bit but um colleen what is what do you love about carrie oh man i don't know i i love uh the idea in general of being pushed to the brink of insanity like i mentioned earlier i love uh when the the mom is saying they're all going to laugh at you. Cause I can't help but think that that's where Adam Sandler got his um, <laughs> comedy album. Yeah, from. totally. Absolutely. <laughs> Polychronopolis. Like, is that where it came from? I think so. I it think had so to be. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I love when the house implodes at the end. Mm-hmm. I, I really like that. Like that, that's just really cool to me. I, I don't know how they did that. Um, I, I like, um, old school movie effects. Uh, I hate CGI. Same, same. And I, wish that um it was still like that um yeah jen 
What do you love about uh, Carrie? Well, I'm combining my nightmare and my dreamscape because this thing I love and I hate at the same time. And it's the, the locker room scene because I feel like it is such a like rich text of all of the things that I like to talk about. It's like the best and the worst of what men think women are when they're alone. I love how... Um, like it, it just kind of encapsulates this idea of women as gatekeepers of menstruation because we've internalized this idea that menstruation makes us unclean and it's something that we have to like protect our kind from so that men will still find us attractive. I have lots and lots of thoughts about these, but like just the moment where Carrie walks up to Sue with the blood on her hand and like if it was blood from a cut on your arm, like I don't think I would have the reaction action I get when I see her go wipe her wipe her, that blood on her shoulder and it's just such a like a visceral reaction that it brings out in me um I also hate but also love the shower scene where because it is so like like nymph-like and I've recently been watching Slumber Party Massacre and I have to think that that is what they are kind of spoofing in that shower scene so it's just this male gaze but it's in such a blatant way that I can really kind of dissect it and what what is it that people at the time thought about women in as a concept rather than individual women and the way that it's kind of a hive mind too it's like I mean I could talk for probably an hour on that scene which is partly why I really love it because it's just so many things there that it like encapsulates so many ideas so yeah I'll I'll save all of my thoughts for another day, but yeah. That's fair. Love and hate it. Well, I have a love-hate also because uh, Mm. I think the music is great. Um, I think, uh, you know... Pino Donaggio or P- Pino, yeah, Pino Donaggio. Um, for some reason, I have Pino Dagagio <laughs> in one of my notes. <laughs> Pino Dagio, um, woof woof. But um, uh, you know, look, Bernard Herrmann was originally supposed to score this, and then he passed away. Um, and what I think is unfortunate is that um, you know, I love Pino Donaggio's score. I think it gets funny. I think it has some really tranquil, meditative, beautiful moments. The thing that I can't stand, and this is mostly De Palma is that the stingers from psycho like they take me right out of the movie like it's yeah. every time it happens i'm like oh yeah De Palma loves fucking hitchcock like that and was, that's on my that's my nightmare as well it's just like it's so i don't know i mean i get it like i read somewhere in one of the trivias that like they were trying to do something that was like a, a real big string moment for whenever she broke the mirrors or whenever she tell telekinesis. And then they're like, Oh, it kind of sounds like psycho. And then they just went with this, the psycho stab. Like, I know that Bernard Herman was supposed to do it, but like, I don't know. It just felt lazy to me. Like it, it's just like for that to be your effect, like why would you crib it? And I've, that's one of my biggest criticisms always of De Palma is that like, I feel like he gets a little too far sometimes in aping other things, but I mean, that dance sequence is the, is my favorite moment. And like, when I think of Carrie, and I think of seventies. I agree, Randall. It's that it's that whole sequence. I mean, Kate Irving's song, which is yeah. the longest title ever. It's "I Never Dreamed Someone Like You Could Love Someone Like Me," which hey, that's the fucking chorus. <laughs> that's that whole sequence is just so gorgeous. Like, I, I and I found myself almost like crying, like tearing up, because the rewatchability of this movie makes it so much more tragic. Because you know exactly what's going to happen right afterwards, mm-hmm. and oof, he does create that moment of just this is what it feels like when you're in love. It's like, how could this be happening to me? And like, mm-hmm. he captures it perfectly in that moment. So yeah, love and hate for me. 
Colleen, what, what is, if there's anything, what do you hate uh, oh, about Carrie? I hate at the end um, when Carrie goes back home and, and Piper Lori, Lori comes out from behind the door and she's wearing that nightgown and she's like braless and her just gigantic boobs are like, <laughs> they're like, oh my God. It's like, that's almost more horrifying to me, her, her huge boobs than like the Bible scene in the beginning. Like, I don't know. It, it brings up memories for me of like, being at the the dentist or something as a little kid and like the hygienist has like huge boobs and they like push <laughs> her face and you have to and it's just like the most uncomfortable weird thing in the world for like a child mm-hmm. and so that's the thing that's probably like my my <laughs> <laughs> I, I hate I hate her huge boobs. Nice, nice. <laughs> Never in a million years would have thought that that's that that is amazing though. <laughs> Top that, Randall. <laughs> uh i can't all i'll say is um uh i feel bad for the pig i do too the piggies yeah. didn't deserve that Ugh. that's my that's my true nightmare is poor piggy you don't like the animals hurt. getting hurt so um not like i do it's no. not like i sit there and be like oh i hope i yeah, hope the dog it. gets it <laughs> fucking yeah sicko. i watch cujo before night uh before night before <laughs> sleep um i'm gonna call it that from now on my girlfriend's gonna love that oh, time for night um <laughs> anyway, speaking of night, sometimes the creepiest parts of night are when you walk through the cemetery. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery human at all. That. That's our next section in the cemetery. We talk about simply what scared us. So, um, Randall, let's start with you. What, what, what scared you in this movie? Because you don't get scared too easily. You're, you're the rocking one. Jesus Christ scared me in this yeah. movie. Good God. Why? If, if, if he is the Lord and Savior and he represents, he is the Prince of Peace. He represents joy. He brings joy to the world. Why? does every painting of Jesus in your house look like it was painted by Alfred Crowley? <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. absolutely fucking dire. And uh, like every picture of Jesus is horrible. And that I think contributes to the camp aspect to some degree, because like, these are such, these are like the most dour pieces of, of Christ art that you can find. And like, obviously I je- her little, the closet that Carrie is forced to go pray in is so fucking perfectly designed and so creepy. And like the Christ with the, with, the knives in them or whatever with the glowing fucking eyes like just genuinely Mm -hmm. horrifying and uh and i've always found it i've always found the rhyme really unnerving when how carrie gets stabbed or uh margaret gets stabbed against the kitchen wall and her her arms are in the exact same spot that the christ is in Mm -hmm. uh in the closet and all the daggers in her are very similar to what it looks like in the in the closet with the jesus that to me is is absolutely scary but um as i've talked about on this podcast before like um uh eerie portraits of of christ and perversions of christ have always as somebody who a former religious kid always uh uh get under my skin a little bit so yeah Uh, yeah i echo everything you just said um so it's i you know i'm jewish um or not even jewish i just happen to be in a jewish family but i uh, also happen to have to go to a christian catholic schools i've talked a lot about on this podcast so for me um 
I really, I don't know. I, I really sympathize a lot with like, uh, <laughs> with Carrie being forced into a lot of this stuff. Um, just because I felt that way in high school when I was like tasked to go to theology class, then, you know, they, for some reason, they never told me that communion, if you are unbaptized and you take it is like a immediate first class ticket to hell. Um, which was fun <laughs> because I took that for about 12 years at, uh, every Wednesday. Cause I was like, Hey, wine. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm hungry. It's like 10 in the morning. So I didn't realize that's going to make me go to hell. So any, all, anything like that has to do with like, um, fanaticism, religious fanaticism just kind of reminds me of what it felt like being in a place where I did believe in religion at all. And, um, having to, I mean, we would have to like do illustrations for every chapter of Mark. I'm like, all right, I got to read this. Great. And I got to draw it. Oh my God. But yeah, so that wasn't fun. But so for me, it's that, 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 that is, for sure the scariest part but jen what scared you um well i love the moment where we realize that margaret is behind the door um, when she's about to go to the bath and just knowing how long she's there but the the moment that i cannot watch still is when she like so her hands are like knived up to the doors margaret white and carrie takes the knife out of one of her hands but the other yes. one, she rips her hand off and she doesn't it goes on for like a minute and like i cannot watch it i start squirming so bad and i just think about what is happening to her hand in that moment like if this were mike flanagan her hand would be like a mangled mess still in the door frame after she gets pulled off but it's just so oh it's unsettling and the fact that we don't actually see it we just know that carrie is trying to pull her off it's oh it's so gross so that's my most terrifying moment of the movie colleen what got on your skin yeah other than the huge boobs uh, <laughs> <laughs> the part that that really legitimately terrifies me is um or i guess it horrifies me is a better word but is the part where she she's hitting her in the face with the Bible and like, it's just like something about the repetition of it and the like unrelenting, like nature of her, her recital, her recitations and, and everything. And like when she's dragging her into the closet and that part for me is just really, really unsettling. It kind of reminds me of Sybil, which I also saw at a really young age and which just like absolutely horrified me. Like, that that part kind of reminds me of of like certain parts of that movie and uh just the whole like abuse of like children and i don't know that's that's that was yeah something that's it's very scary to me yeah well i hope we're not too scared that we don't want to eat and when i say eat i i mean just a little snack because our next section we're gonna have one. Uh, it's called pound cake. After all you've been taught, everyone in bad mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray. Ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, mom. You like him. You really like him, mama. All right. Well, with pound cake, we traditionally spotlight the filthier side of King. On paper, I mean, you can go back to our book episode. Plenty of slices we carved out because it was our first pound cake section, and we had a lot of them in there because we <laughs> talked a lot about uh, King's way of describing um, uh, breasts. Uh, I need to go back and, and see how he described uh, Margaret's breasts. Maybe it was just like terrifying <laughs> and swinging, and you know, probably. I'm sure he discussed I'm them sure extensively he as he does mm -hmm. most women. Uh, yeah. Jehubal. Yeah. <laughs> but what it, what what kind of stood out to you is like pieces of pound cake here, Jen? Um, because I, I. I'm. Go for it. 
Well, there's the scene in the car with uh, Billy and Chris, which I, I think is a pretty, like, I don't mind it. I think it's interesting. But there's, like, a moment where I'm like, she's still talking, and I can see both of her hands. So what's yeah. going on down there? But I just think it's so, it, it plays out really, like, high school-like, like, very kind of juvenile, sweet, romantic kind of, but also really nefarious given what is happening in the scene. But I just think it's really interesting. And the, just that look on his face, like, her, I really hate uh, Carrie White. And then he just gets this look of, like, oh, it's just <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that scene is probably the only smuttiest really moment we get. And it feels so, um, you know, like I always talk about like people don't know, don't know how to curse. You can always tell because it's, yeah. it kind of feels like they've never, it's like, oh, wow, it's, like, it's a rare occasion for them. It almost feels like the way this scene is filmed is like someone who's never really like been in a sexual situation in a car. <laughs> like, yeah, never got. Car it just ahead. doesn't seem yeah. real. It does feel a little bit like um, comical to me, and I feel like that kind of goes into the whole camp quality that you're talking about, Randall. Like, it, it never, I never get the sense that like it's being like, and especially from the set, an era of the '70s, it just doesn't. It comes off as so uh, more comical than um, smutty, I guess. You know, in a sense. I was kind of wondering if maybe that scene, like, because it sounds dubbed. Like the yeah. audio, like you said, Jen, like you can very clearly hear what she's saying, like maybe more audibly than any of her dialogue in the rest of the movie. And so for that, it's kind of not fitting. And I, I was wondering if maybe that was supposed to be like a sex scene and they filmed that and it didn't work for some reason. So they decided to make it like a car BJ scene or something. I don't know if anybody knows the trivia on that, but yeah. yeah. Did it's definitely it definitely supposed to have more sex scenes in the book because I remember there's like one of the, the more one of the more yeah. tragic scenes is like just seeing like Chris's lifestyle and then also Billy's lifestyle mm -hmm. and you can kind of tell like yeah things aren't great. There's yeah there's an assault. Scene yeah, I'm kind of glad they took that yeah. out because I don't think that would have worked really well for uh, Travolta. Um, you know, yeah. hey, why don't you go play uh, Danny Zuko? Uh, <laughs> Three, two years after this, you know, hey, go for it. Hey, wait, wait, wait. isn't that that guy that assaulted I mean, with Nancy all the Allen? implications of that role? Yeah, that is you. true, also. Um, but hey, you know, look, I, I sang all those lyrics in, in the playground when I was younger. Really, really great. Yep, I sang with karaoke, like, two yeah, and all the, all the teachers, like, Reese, I love it. And it's like, yeah, I just talked about like chicks and cream and stuff like that. Like, you know, fourth grade, what are you doing? All right. Let's get the hell out of pound cake and let's let's detour in a quick detour, quick, quick, quick detour into King's Dominion. There's another world out there. I know there is. I call this King's Dominion, or we call this King's Dominion, because we talk about the connections to all of King's works. And here's the thing: this is the first fucking story, so. Not a lot of, you know, not a lot of, you know, references because, um, well, they, they wouldn't be able to have them, you know? I mean, in the book, you can kind of find some things that would hint later on. De Palma's not thinking about that because, look, Stephen King's not a household name. He's not a blockbuster name. He's not really, there's no IP involved. It's just, here's a great story. Let's tell it. Having said that, mm -hmm. you know, there's some connections to later King stuff um, talent-wise. So Sissy Spacek. She would be in season one of uh, Hulu's Castle Rock as Ruth Deaver. Probably one of the best parts of that, that, that first season and certain, certainly the star yeah, of the best episode, The Queen. Seek it out on Hulu. Oh. Um, mm -hmm. Lawrence D. Cohen, who wrote the screenplay, he went on to adapt a number of King stories. He did uh, 1990's It, 1993's The Tommyknockers, which is a uh, Randall Colburn favorite. Um, 
It's so bad. Awful. <laughs> the end of the whole mess from the 2006 Nightmares and Dreamscapes episode or miniseries, which you could hear all about in our Patreon. Um, and he was called in to punch up the 2013 remake of Carrie. Uh, didn't work too well, Larry. Sorry. Um, and then Paul Monash, uh, Paul Monash, Paul Monash. It's got to be Monash. Uh, he. Wait, hold on. I just want to pause. How weird is that? You get brought, you bring in the original writer to punch up your remake. I know. Isn't it weird? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, why are you remaking this if you clearly Mm. don't have a vision for it? I'm sure he asked the same thing. Well, that's. (laughs) I know. It's just crazy. Like, bringing in the original writer to punch up the remake of the movie he already made. I know. It's just Mm. very strange. It's so bizarre. Um, But that movie is, is very bizarre also. And. I, yep. I feel like people and forget bad. it even happened and it made money. Yeah. That's the thing mm-hmm. for the better. Uh, but anyway, Monash would go and, yeah. and adapt the next project Salem's lot. He would write it. Um, I have to imagine he saw the success of Carrie. I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to flex my own muscle here. And uh, I like the TV uh, Salem's lot. I don't think it's bad. Yeah, it's fine. Bad. Um, that's all I got. Did anyone else see any other Kings Dominion stuff? Oh yeah, there's a reference to uh, desperation. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, they, they're like, "Hey, right. let's go to Little Tall Island next." Um, <laughs> Randall Flag pops up and he's like, "Hey, burn this place down." <laughs> um, anyway, look, as King proved, there are other worlds than these, but as we'll soon prove, there are other opinions at large, and we'll hear ours in our final section, which we've cleverly titled "Final Thoughts." Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. He said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. Gary Springer. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, look, in Final Thoughts, we're going to offer uh, our Pennywise clown nose rankings. One through five. One being meh. Five being, hey, this is a popcorn classic. Um, Jen, let's kick it off with you, Uh what, give, us, give us your final thoughts. Um, I love this story. I love this movie. I love Carrie in this. Like the scene, there's nothing quite like the scene where she is standing and the curtain goes up in flames behind her. Like I get chills every time I watch that. Yeah, that I shot just is incredible. Oh my God, it's amazing. Just the way the entire prom scene is filmed is just fantastic. Um, I love the themes and I think the themes are really well developed here, but not like overkill. I think it really like De Palma really understands what story he's trying to tell and I think he does it really effectively. And it's a story that really works for me and that I really like to like sink my teeth into. So I keep kicking around four and a half Pennywise, Clownwise noses. Clownwise. <laughs> Clownwise. Clown, Clownwise. <laughs> No, nosy wise is yeah. The dollar um, store Pennywise mask, clown wise. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, they're the ones you get on discount after yeah. Halloween's over. Um, I, but I don't know. I think maybe I need to give it a five because I just really love That's it. Great. If I give Pet Cemetery five, I'll get. I'm gonna give this one a five. That's fair. Too, That's so. fair. Five. Colleen, are you familiar with Pennywise the clown from It? Yeah. yeah. That's what we grade our our things on is. Uh, one to five bright red Pennywise clown noses. Uh, it started so. as a bit, and then everyone, listeners were like, that's really funny. And we're like, well, I guess we're stuck with this. Um, right. Five years later. <laughs> so, so, Colleen, what? The nose or the remake nose? Ooh, good question. Uh, I think we're Tim, Tim Curry noses. Yeah, it's got to be Tim Curry yeah. now. Okay, okay yeah. good. Uh, Colleen, what is your bright red Pennywise clown nose ranking of, of Carrie? I give it a five. Yes. Yeah. 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 I think it has a really good cast. That's my final thought. Um, I think personally, I think like 
the cast is maybe like the most important part of a movie or it, it can really determine whether or not a movie works or mm-hmm. not. and I think that this movie has a really good cast and um and all the actors did a, a really good job in it especially Carrie and uh Sissy and, and Piper Laurie so I give them I give the two of them a five for Sweet. sure nice Randall take it away I think this movie is is so good, and I think a lot of it, like I, I mentioned, the tonal aspects. I, I mentioned my little magical bubble thing, and I think that it's. I think the magical bubble thing speaks to this mastery of the navigation of tone and also reality, because sometimes we sort of float in and out. I think of of Carrie's POV and you know hopping between POVs can be really hard I think this movie mostly has an omniscient one um but then I think during the prom that's when De Palma very subtly brings us into Carrie's POV Mm -hmm. and then that's uh I think shattered once she begins having her you know uh post pig's blood meltdown and uh and then we're kind of back to the omniscient uh look at it and i think it's that section the ease with which he takes us into uh the fractured uh pov lens of carrie that is what really elevates this for me and makes it uh such a beguiling watch and so yeah five five noses for me i'm a huge huge fan of this movie the more i watch it the more i like it um, I'm sad I it was a blind spot for me for so long. So, um, yeah, that's my final thoughts. Well, uh, once you're blind, now you can see, you know, keep it religious. Yeah. Uh, look, what else is there to say? I mean, it's masterful. It's beautiful. It's timeless. But I think it would also be lying if we didn't say it was like achingly vintage and even antiquated. Um, because it is. I mean, you just look at it. And you're like, yeah, it's not about yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but I, and I I do wish I wish they made them like I this, do though, you know yeah. I wish they did um but I think as we discussed I mean earlier we all know Carrie some of us were Carrie I mean and I think hell at this point I think Carrie has pretty much become synonymous with outcasts and bullying is like Kleenexes with tissues and I think that's why this book has endured for so long and so many years and so many generations and it will continue to do so for so many years and so many generations um and I think you know, because the team, De Palma, Cohen, Monash, whatever, <laughs> the stars, I think because they were so respectful of the source material and they treat it so delicately, I feel like the movie's similarly as ubiquitous as the book, you know? Um, and so for that, you know, I give this, was going to go 4.5, but I don't want to be the outcast myself. So I'm going to go five <laughs> white, wed, Pennywise clown noses. And if you gave this 4.5, I would bully you, Chris Hargitson. You're just going to drive I over right now, drinking you. beer and listening to Martha <laughs> and the Vandellas. Um, I'm going to also toss in a nice little 45 that includes the Kate Irving song because I, I think that sends it over the edge for me. I just, I love that song. I can't believe it's not on Spotify. Fortunately, I found a zip and I downloaded it. So come at me. Uh, now, uh, a zip. zip. So, uh, but yeah, um, that's a wrap. And the good news is, uh, I don't, you know, because remember we're in detention. <laughs> um, <laughs> Principal Morton has just informed me that you're all clear to go to prom. Um, but if I see any of you, so much as throw shade to Carrie White. You're going to be right back here on this field by sunrise. <laughs> but uh, before we go, please, I, we got, let's, let's tell us uh, tell us what's in your day planner, your trapper keeper, if we're going to keep it in the 90s. Um, Colleen, what do you have coming up? Uh, not a whole hell of a lot just yet. Uh, hopefully playing shows again at some point soon. But 
I don't know, just chilling hard, pretty much. Yeah. I look forward for you to come to Chicago. Yeah, when seriously. I yeah, me too. I hope to make it happen sometime soon. Sweet. We hope so. In the meantime, we've got Cool, yeah. which is out, available on streaming services, wherever it is you get your music. Your local record store, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there you go. Jen, what is going down over at Psychoanalysis this month? Well, if you like hearing me rant about periods, <laughs> um, we have an episode on ginger snaps that is dropping this week where our theme for November is coming of HR. And so we're talking about that. And then we're also pairing that with the movie Raw, which I still Oof, have not so seen. Good. And I'm excited. Uh, Raw is so good. So good. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm nervous, but also very excited. And then, like I mentioned, we have a comfort horror episode on the faculty. And then another one that's going to be on Big Trouble in Little China, which I also have not seen yet. So. That's a weird one. It's so, a weird one. I <laughs> Well, it's going to be starring fellow loser Dan Flieger. He's our guest for that well, episode. Well, that's better so. than his original yeah. comfort horror choice, which is one hour photo. Um, what the <laughs> fuck <laughs> is wrong with you, Flieger? <laughs> but, uh, not to call him out. Uh, yeah, not so. to call him out. I, I just, when oh, you yeah. told me that, I was just like, yep, that seems right on brand. Um, <laughs> oh, so lots of fun stuff. It's exciting. Uh, Randall, what's next for the losers? What do we got coming up this month? Uh, November's going to be great. We've got um, our book episode. We're talking about the girl who loved Tom Gordon. That's a Latter-day King that you might want to check out, Colleen. Um, it's very short, too. Uh, mm. we'll, uh, what else do we have here? We've got this episode, yeah. uh, which is great. And um, <laughs> and then uh, we just finalized we the Steve- schedule, so that's probably why it's a little uh, <laughs> right. it's a little fresh to us right now. But yeah, I'm uh, I'm I'm reading this here, so. Um, <laughs> Uh, Stephen King's stories for Halloween, or not Halloween, <laughs> Thanksgiving. Uh, his many stories about carving turkey and eating cranberries uh, is going to be is going to be available via our Patreon, which will be a really good one. We're going to be talking about the latest in Hollywood King news, what's coming up, what's going out, and uh, and then we're going to be revisiting our Dark Tower Detour mini series. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Bends of the Rainbow. That's for the Dark Tower heads. We would love you to come listen to it in our Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com slash the Barons. Our Matteran uh, patrons who get uh, a weekly or a, not a weekly a monthly God, zoom could you imagine a weekly? with jesus christ <laughs> with us uh we're gonna be doing something different this month we're gonna be doing a watch along of the dark half video game a video game was made for computers in 1994 uh based on the dark half which is very odd because there's so few stephen king video games out there so we're gonna be watching along with that having some fun and uh yeah it's gonna be a good month and then we got hearts in atlantis coming up in december so start reading on that because it's long that's a long one and yeah i was i was just and Tom Gordon is short. I was I was just holding that book in the bookstore the other day, and I was like, "Could I do this in December?" And I was like, eh, "I think I'm going to start reading on re- on writing or whatever," which is our January book. So, um, this is fun. So good. Uh, thank you, Colleen. Thank you, everyone, for tuning yeah, in. Thank you, Colleen. This was a blast. Yes. This is all- yeah. Thanks so much for inviting me. Of course. Well, like Margaret White might say, "Go to your closet and pray. <laughs> Ask." <laughs> to be forgiven over long days and, and pleasant, pleasant nights. nights. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know you want somebody to treat you good. This is the end of our show. For now. Tune in next week.
If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more. <laughs>